Hey, Matt Teichman here from Elucidations. Before we get going today, I just thought I'd ask, if you're a fan of the show, to maybe go to our iTunes page and leave a rating and or review, and that way more people can discover it. All right, thanks. a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman. And I'm Emily Dupree. With us today is Julian Savalescu, Uehiro Professor of Practical Ethics at the University of Oxford and Director of the Oxford Uehiro Center for Practical Ethics. And he's here to talk to us about doping in sports. Julian Savalescu, welcome. Hello. So today's topic doesn't really need that much introduction, I guess. The big question would be doping, yay or nay? Should professional athletes be allowed to take performance-enhancing drugs? Well, from an ethical point of view, many people believe that it's immoral or wrong for athletes to take performance-enhancing drugs. And on one level, that's absolutely correct. I mean, they're cheating, they're breaking the rules, and they're getting an unfair advantage. But I think a more interesting question is, is there something unethical about allowing performance-enhancing drugs in sport? And here I think the answer is much less clear than many people believe. And there are good reasons, in fact, to change the rules to allow what I've called physiological doping. So the first reason that we should at least think about the ethics of a doped form of sport is that it's pretty obvious that the current zero-tolerance approach to performance-enhancing drugs has failed. Lance Armstrong is the most spectacular example, but in fact, you know, there are many, many other cases. Doping continues to be rife in cycling. Recently, a number of Jamaican sprinters were found to be doping. In fact, out of the only 10 men to have ever run faster than 9.8 seconds, eight of them have been shown to be doping already. So it seems like we've reached the limit of human performance in terms of sprinting and the performances that you see are are really performance assisted. So the first reason is that the ban on doping is failing. But the second more important reason is that by having a zero tolerance ban, you're actually creating an unsafe environment for athletes because there's no supervision of what they're doing. You increase unfairness because those athletes that are able to sidestep the rules gain an unfair advantage. And of course, you're ruining the spectacle of sport. I mean, people no longer know whether their favourite tennis player is doping or not. And in fact, we could address those problems by having regulated access to performance enhancement. What do I mean by that? Well, you really need to understand the science behind current doping because many people have in in their minds the sort of East German women who were given massive doses of testosterone and and in fact some even changed their sexes. That was an incredibly dangerous supraphysiological administration of hormones and um, that's not what athletes are doing today. What they're doing is moving within the normal range and it's an obvious feature of human beings that they all differ 
no one is exactly the same as anyone else. So they differ in the level of red blood cells they have, they differ in the level of growth hormone, they differ in the level of testosterone. And what the current rules are trying to catch are people moving within that physiological range. The easiest to comprehend example is red blood cells. The more red blood cells you have, the more oxygen you carry, the greater your endurance. Now, there's a distribution, a normal distribution between say 40 and 52 for men and the more red blood cells you naturally carry the greater your advantage. Now if you move from say a red blood cell level where 45% of your blood is red blood cells to one where it's 50% you've got a substantial performance advantage and what authorities like the World Anti-Doping Agency are trying to work out is if somebody has a hematocrit, a percentage of red blood cells that's 50, is that normal? for them or have they taken either erythropoietin, a natural hormone that increases red blood cells or even had their own blood retransfused back. And those are very difficult things to detect because what the athletes are doing is completely natural. It's not as if they're taking something like caffeine, which is a performance enhancer, but which is unnatural and you can just test for caffeine. If you try to test for things like EPO and red blood cells, you've got the confounding factor that um, you've got that those are natural substances. So in my view, we should set limits which are safe and that are within the physiological range. So for example, for a long time, cycling has had this 50% rule for the percentage of red blood cells because they knew they couldn't pick up doping accurately. So they set this limit as a safe physiological limit. It's the same limit that's used in the treatment of people with renal failure. And that's very easy to pick up. You know, you can work out whether someone's hematocrit is 51 or 50 or 49 with a simple test that can be easily administered. So the testing is more reliable, the endpoint is safe, and it means you'll have a higher degree of confidence that you're picking up people who are cheating without compromising anything except for the natural variation between human beings. So the current view of sport is that it has to be a test of just what we were naturally born with. And in my view, sport doesn't have to be a purely test of natural ability. So I think in any sport, there's an acceptable sort of harm that comes with the sport, and then there's an unacceptable type of harm. And the question is, which side is doping on? Are there forms of doping that you want to continue to outright ban, and then some which you would prefer to have regulated? And if so, how does that relate to the way it harms an athlete and whether it's an acceptable or unacceptable harm? Yeah, I mean, it, it's certainly true that doping can be extremely harmful. In fact, anything can be extremely harmful. If you drink enough water, you'll kill yourself. Uh, you drink enough sugar, you'll kill yourself. And if you take enough caffeine, you'll kill yourself. The question is, can you put limits that are safe and consistent with the sort of risks that are normally present in sport? And here I think we need to draw the line between physiological doping, moving within what would be the normal range for human beings of some parameter, and supra-physiological doping, that is pushing them way beyond what humans would ever naturally be. And you know we can draw these lines because we have a very detailed understanding of human physiology today. So you can increase your growth hormone level to a safe degree, or you can take massive doses that will cause a, a disorder called acromegaly, where the jaw becomes extremely large, the hands and feet become extremely large, you get an extremely large heart, and that's a very dangerous condition. 
but it's easy to pick up um, you know, whether people are attempting to take such large doses. Now, how great a risk should we tolerate? And here I think it's important to bear in mind that sport itself is extremely risky. The risks of physiological doping are minute compared to the risks of a lot of sports such as American football with huge head injury rates, dementia rates, crippling of the body. But if you look at cycling, where the greatest amount of doping has occurred, there was a recent study for the last 100 years of all Tour de France riders. And they had, even when doping was pretty much unregulated, and even when it was unregulated, and they were taking extremely harmful substances, they still have an average life expectancy that's greater than the average population and a 30% lower death rate. In fact, more people have died from accidents in cycling, 20 I think since 1980, than have died in any way that's attributable to doping. So doping can be extremely safe if you set the right physiological endpoints. And it can also be easy to sort of enforce those. So there will be practices like gene doping that will be quite risky and dangerous um, in the near future that we should ban and we should ban taking of, of extremely dangerous substances or substances in large amounts. But the idea that just because we relax the ban it should be open slather or a free-for-all is you know, a mistake. It's up to us to set the rules in sport. So if I'm understanding your position then, your answer to the question, how much risk is it safe for athletes to assume? Well, however much risk they would ordinarily assume in ordinarily doing the sport and taking performance-enhancing drugs doesn't really add significantly to those risks that are already present. And then similarly, your answer to the question, where do we draw the line? What constitutes the difference between safe doping and unsafe doping? There you want to say, well, whatever measures keep the athletes within the bounds of what a human being would normally be capable of. Yeah, we could take the health of athletes a lot more seriously and less hypocritically. I'll give you some performance-enhancing substances that are allowed already. You can inject football players or you know, competitive sportsmen with analgesics and local anaesthetics to enable them to keep playing. Now, pain is a natural part of um, combative sport, and when you remove that, you put the athlete at risk, and it enhances their performance because they can keep playing when they have significant injuries. You can dose them up with non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like ibuprofen, and in the last World Cup, most of the soccer players are on ibuprofen to enable them to sort of tolerate the injuries and the damage that's being done. Now, those are quite unsafe, and when you look at taking, say, steroids to assist recovery from an injury or to enable a person to train harder, when that's given in a supervised medical environment, the risks are much lower than, than engaging in those kinds of practices. So, you know, we could even administer <laughs> doping at levels of safety much greater than the currently, you know, associated with sport. The concern about safety is a sort of a, a false kind of argument because it's offered as if doping would always be unsafe, when in fact the real target of the anti-doping agencies it's not safety, it's that you don't want people to be taking exogenous substances to assist their performance or recovery. So is the position you're putting forth more on the lines of, well, everybody's doping anyway, so and there's very little we can do to stop at least certain kinds of doping that are difficult to detect, so I guess we just have to live with that fact? Or is it more on the lines of, look, if we allow athletes to dope, 
they can be better at doing what athletes are really supposed to be doing in the first place. Performance-enhancing drugs can be a means of athletics really doing what it's supposed to do. Yeah, look, I often hear this subjection that, oh, aren't we just acquiescing to sort of evil? And, you know, just because we can't eliminate murder doesn't mean that we should legalise. And I was on some program recently, this woman said, you know, what you're saying is, you know, we should stop trying to pursue the mafia because, you know, the war is, isn't being won. And it's completely ludicrous because doping is not, a, you know, a violent crime against another human being. There's actually nothing intrinsically wrong with um, doping. In fact, it's been a part of sport ever since sport became competitive. So the idea that there's something intrinsically immoral with using substances to assist performance, I think, is a deep mistake. The idea that sport has to be a biological test of genetics, it has to be, we have to find the person with the most desirable genetic profile for sprinting is something that you know, the Nazis would have admired, you know, admiring the genetically, you know, gifted and despising the genetically weak. And people, you know, use all kinds of interventions to alter the sort of genetic lottery. They used advanced training methods, they use strategies, they use radios during competition. You know, all of those things are altering the, the kind of natural genetic lottery. And I don't think there's anything intrinsically wrong with that. And doping is a little bit like taking glucose to maximise your performance. There was a wonderful example of doping that passed by everyone unnoticed in the last Tour de France cycling race for uh, people who don't. And uh, the guy that won it, Chris Froome, had a stage where he passed a certain point and after that point you're not allowed to take high concentrated glucose any longer. It's within the sort of last few kilometres of the race. And he hit the wall. So he took some concentrated glucose from his teammate, Richie Port, within just the sort of final couple of kilometres. Because if he hadn't done that, he would have lost potentially minutes and potentially the race. Now, he was fined for that infraction of that rule. But that was essentially doping. Because you know, once you run out of glucose, it makes a difference between winning and losing. So when people try to maximise the amount of glucose, the amount of water that they have in their body, they're trying to maximise their internal physiology for performance. So what's the difference between that and maximising the level of red blood cells that are carrying oxygen? Those are equally invasive. We don't you know, regulate the concentration of glucose all through a race or water all through the race. So we're just testing people's natural genetic ability to use those substances. We allow them to move within a certain kind of range by using their understanding of physiology. And you know, many of these doping practices are exactly like that. Testosterone acts, steroids act, not magically, they act to increase the recovery time from training and increase the recovery from injury. That's not something that removes the intrinsic human contribution in sport. It's something that enables people to train harder and they still train at the same levels, they simply get more advantage and they're able to overcome injuries. It's a famous doping case in Australia, Australia's greatest um, spin bowler, Shane Warne, had a shoulder injury and was caught taking a masking agent for steroids, which usually implies the person is taking steroids, in order to cover, recover from injury. And he was banned for a year. And it was a completely pointless ban because you know steroids are not going to 
super enhanced spin bowling. It was really there to, they really would have just assisted recovery. We've seen in sports like tennis, for example, that as technology advances, for example, the technology of the rackets, the rules of the game are close behind to sort of mitigate the advances made possible by those technological advances. So the courts become slower, etc. Do you think that this would happen with a regulated, permissible use of performance-enhancing drugs, that the advantages that would come from them would become not as great as the sports catch up to it? Yeah, the rules of sport need to constantly evolve. There's no kind of rule that can be, you know, set for all time. We saw this in Formula One after Ayrton Senna's death, you know, the, the rules were changed and there hasn't been a death since then. Tennis, the racket sizes have changed, then the ball tension changed. And what will happen is as doping becomes more openly performed and more substances are available, the rules will have to be revised. But the idea that you could set a rule back in, you know, the 1960s or 70s that will, you know, kind of continue on for the rest of eternity in sport is just a crazy way of thinking about the evolution of human beings and their technology. So, you know, I don't know what the rules should be in 10 years' time. I think we should look at the sports that we have today, the agents that are available, how they would affect the sport, and we should have a set of values. So in order to make any ethical decision, it has to be made according to a set of principles or values. And at the moment, the only real value is that we want sport to be a test of pure genetic potential. And I think that more reasonable values are the safety of the athlete, the interest of the spectacle, enabling fair competition, and also another endpoint is that it should remain a substantially human activity. There would be some doping practices that might be safe that would, would take over and dominate the performance. So for example, today you could give shooters or um, pool players or snooker players or archers beta blockers which remove the tremor that is meant to be an essential test in the sport. And that's something I think we should ban, and we could easily ban those because you can pick up beta blockers very easily. Likewise, if you give boxers drugs that remove fear or pain, that would remove something that's intrinsic to boxing. So I think that we can have values and how those values play out in a particular sport with the particular substances that are available will be a job for a specific focused analysis rather than, well, we can have you know one rule for all sports for all time. I mean, one of the themes that seems to keep sort of cropping up in our discussion is that, look, if you endorse a reasonable use of performance-enhancing drugs, that doesn't really, it's not really that different from what we're already doing anyway, because we already have some. Yeah, I mean, if right. people say, oh, won't this corrupt? Well, you're watching right. <laughs> dope sport. You're watching performance-enhancement, and you have been for the last 10 years. So you have yeah. to ask, has that completely removed the interest and sort of value of sport? It hasn't. It would be just better if we could improve on that. One of the basic principles in ethics is that you need to compare realistic alternatives. So it's not that we should say, well, you know, if, you know, if doping were completely eliminated and human beings are angels and everyone you know, played fair, that's the standard we should look at. We should look at the standard of what sport is like today and say, can we improve upon that? Mm. And my argument is that we can improve upon it if we give up this kind of fanatical 
Stalinist attachment to sort of zero tolerance. And, you know, that's actually already happened. Uh, Caffeine used to be banned. It increases the time to exhaustion by 10%. And athletes had medals taken off them because they had taken some caffeine-containing cold medication. And now it's illegal, and it's hugely widespread in both recreational, professional, adult, children's sports. And it doesn't seem to have... um, corrupted the nature of sport or endangered health. And it's important to remember again, caffeine is something that children take all the time in caffeinated sugary beverages, which is probably going to be much more dangerous than you know taking it in a sporting context. So it's not clear to me that this alternative solution doesn't just fall under the same problem that we're pointing out with the current state of athletics, which is that if we're going to permit some forms of doping and continue to ban others, won't it be the case that people will continue to cheat in that more limited realm? They will continue to dope, find undetectable ways of gaining an advantage over their peer athletes, and that the agencies tasked with kind of rooting out cheating will will still be encountering the same problems as they do now? Yeah, people sometimes object that you know, this will just shift the problem, it won't eliminate it. And I think that's a mistake. The reason it's a mistake is that, you know, I'm arguing we should look for endpoints that can be more reliably enforced. So what you want are tests that pick up 99.9% of the cheaters, not 1% of the cheaters. There was something like 25,000 tests done in 2011 by WADA for EPO, and about 50 of them were positive. Now, I just don't believe that only 50 people were doping. If you microdose with EPO, you get around that sort of testing. And they're picking up just the tip of the iceberg. And Larry Bowers, the expert scientist for the US Anti-Doping Agency said, you can't equate a negative test with the absence of doping. So you want tests that are more likely to pick up cheaters. Now, of course, human beings being what they are, they will try to find ways around those tests and they will succeed. The question is, can you put rules in place that mean fewer people can sidestep the rules and also they gain less advantage? Now, if you set, you know, hematocrit at 50%, it's true that some people may try to, you know, use dilution of their blood and so on to gain some advantage, but the amount of advantage that they're getting is, first of all, going to be less than they would in the current state of affairs. And secondly, you can focus your resources on attempting to pick up those sorts of infractions of the rules. So, you know, I'm not suggesting that we should allow any kind of doping, but if we focus on rules that are safe, highly enforceable, protect the spectacle of sport, protect the sort of human contribution, then maybe we will come up with a set of rules that means that fewer people cheat successfully and fewer people get significant advantages. That's a kind of an empirical proposition. It's not something that we can decide now. This is a question of science. But in order to go down that path of of trying to scientifically evaluate different proposals, you have to give up this absolute commitment, this kind of deontological sort of commitment to zero tolerance of of performance-enhancing substances. And that's the critical step, I think, that we need to make. And then exactly what kind of policy will be best will be a matter of balancing the science against values that we agree on. 
So some of this discussion has made me think of professional bodybuilding where doping seems, at least to the naked eye, to be running rampant. And what's interesting about bodybuilding is you have this sort of like renegade natural bodybuilding movement that sprung up alongside it. Essentially, uh, another set of bodybuilding competitions with stricter rules that do more testing. And yeah, I guess effectively what's happened here is you have the creation of a new sport, a second sport. So, you know, we have natural bodybuilding and doped bodybuilding. And do you think you would, what would you say to a proposal to have like natural cycling and performance enhanced cycling or natural basketball and performance enhanced basketball? You know, is that a solution to this set of issues to uh, effectively create a second sport? Yeah, I, it's, I don't think it is a, a satisfactory solution because if there's enough interest in the sort of natural undoped sport and enough money, then people will dope within it and cheat and uh, they'll have greater chance of succeeding. What you need in professional sport is uniform rules and uniform testing. Now, the problem with the Jamaican debacles is that you know there's very little out-of-seasons testing in Jamaica. So what you would have in this sort of doped versus undoped two-tier sport is you'd have people crossing over and um, you'd be faced with all the same problems that you're faced with now. Um, And I think we have a limited amount of resources for enforcing these sorts of rules in a highly kind of scientifically advanced, technologically advanced world. And we should focus those resources on achieving as best as we can the sort of values that we have. I mean, what you really see here is in sort of philosophical terms, is you know a conflict between consequentialism and deontology. And deontology is associated with uh, rules that shouldn't be broken regardless of the consequences. And you know what you have here is a rule that athletes shouldn't take performance-enhancing substances regardless of the consequences, regardless of the cost, the, the kind of unfairness, the spectacle, the dangers of having an unsupervised practice versus a consequentialist approach that says, you know, what is it that we value about sport? How can we best achieve that? Let's use the science to try to, to achieve those sorts of values. So it really is a kind of typical philosophical dispute between, for example, to take a parallel, those people who have an absolute prohibition on killing under any circumstances versus consequentialists who say, you know, euthanasia can be permissible under certain circumstances and the values that should guide those practices are respect for autonomy or, you know, promotion of people's welfare. So, you know, it's it's sort of typical debate that you see in practical ethics. So I think another worry that it's common to have about doping in sports is suppose we loosen the restrictions on when and where doping is allowed. Isn't that just going to sort of take over, swamp the sport, and now new athletes effectively have no choice but to dope. And so uh, introducing this measure has the effect of you know, taking away some of the freedoms of some of the new athletes. Yeah, it certainly does um, restrict the freedom of athletes, but the question is, is that wrong? And it would be wrong if it were substantially you know, unsafe, if it forced them to do things that were bad for them. Now, you know, I've argued that doping within physiological the physiological range is just like the sorts of practices that athletes already undergo where under you know engage in when they take sugar take water you know manipulate their diet in various ways take creatine concentrated beetroot extract so you know you can't say well you know i just want to be a professional sportsman and win and i want to be able to do whatever i want 
You have to do hours of painful, dangerous training. You have to incur the risks that are associated with a particular sport. And say in American football, it's huge damage to your body, broken neck, dementia. Um, and you can't say, well, you know, I want to be a professional football player, but I don't want those sorts of things. Mm. So when it comes to the sort of how bad is the incursion of freedom of people having to take physiological doping, it's not bad at all. They're moving just within a normal physiological range. And the key premise has been that it should be safe for them to do that. And if they would be prepared to go to altitude training to push up their red blood cells, or prepared to go in a hypoxic air tent to push up their red blood cells, then there's no good reason why they shouldn't be prepared to use blood doping when supervised by a medical professional to achieve exactly the same thing. So they might say, well, I don't want to be taking, you know, these unnatural interventions, but that's a kind of, I think, an outdated view of what sport is. I mean, there's one other thing too. In terms of coercion, there is already coercion because in order to be successful, if you just look at the cycling autobiographies and you know, Rasmussen has got a new one, in order to win, you have to dope. In order to, to get sponsors, you have to win. So you have to dope. So there's already enormous coercion to take unsupervised, dangerous forms of doping. So there's already a huge amount of coercion in sport. And also there's the background not coercion but force of human nature when the rewards are millions of dollars and the chances of being detected are relatively low doping is almost irresistible for many people and it would be far better that that was under medical supervision it's interesting i mean your position is now starting to remind me a bit of what's people will sometimes say this about music like you know music music has to evolve, right? If you compose music, you have to write music that's of your time. So if somebody right now were to sit down and like compose you know, a symphony in the style of Beethoven, it would just sort of be weird. It would be like not music as it's being practiced now. You know, in a way, um, there's something perpetually sort of forward moving about human practices. You sort of, once they've changed, you can sort of do something that's an ode to the way the practice used to be, but you can't like sort of artificially hold it back or go back to the way it was before. And it seems like you're making this kind of argument about sports. You know, a sport isn't something fixed. It's not based on an ideal. It's something that evolves over time. Part of what it is to participate in a sport is to be sensitive to how the sport is evolving. Yeah, that's exactly right. The human animal is an animal that modifies its environment and itself. And, you know, what you're seeing with modern sport is a, a kind of fusion of human competitors with the advances of science and the fruits of their labor essentially and to be human is to try to be better is to try to use what you know to improve performance and what i think you really see here is a division between the bioconservatives who have this deep attachment to the natural or the god-given and they believe that we should stay in our place, essentially. God gave us a place or nature has given us a place and you shouldn't usurp your position by you know, modifying your person versus more liberals who believe that there's nothing important, ethically important about the natural state of affairs or the natural ordering of human beings and that we should indeed change that natural ordering according to certain sorts of values. So again, you see this dispute really between bio-liberals and bio-conservatives around sort of fundamental values and views of the world. 
And, you know, it's exactly, it pans out again in, in terms of, of, you know, recreational drug legislation. You have conservatives who say people should not take drugs, except, of course, of our alcohol and caffeine and the ones that they take in order to, you know, affect their mental states or their happiness versus, you know, liberals who say, you know, well, we should look at each case and, you know, there are the use of our knowledge of pharmacology and physiology to make people happier or more sociable or more relaxed or something that's on the table and we should aim to reduce harm and so on. So again, these are sort of standard debates that you, you, you know, see panning out in drugs in sport. The reason why I'm interested in performance enhancement in sport is not because I think it's the most important ethical issue, although people often see sport as a religion. And that's why they become so disturbed if their icons or their idols are sort of found to be just ordinary human beings. The reason why I'm interested in it is because it's the tip of the iceberg of human enhancement. And it's clear that doping in sport works. You can improve physical performance. And so the debates that you're seeing around this, I think, are a kind of precursor to debates that you will see with other forms of human enhancement, when we can modify people's cognitive abilities or indeed their mood or indeed their relationships. So I think it's a good test case or testing ground in some ways for how we will approach more widespread human enhancement. I think the talk of the natural and the sacred of the natural comes up in interesting ways when we think about transgender athletes and the fact that they encounter a lot of difficulty in participating and competing against athletes of their own gender identity. Either they are banned from competing in either gendered sport because they're taking hormones, or if they are allowed to compete against athletes of their own gender identity and continue hormone therapy, then they they have to also undergo surgeries and things that people typically, or not everybody wants to do. And so it seems like one upshot of permitting doping in sports, whether or not you object to it on other grounds, one upshot is that it would open up the field of sporting to athletes who are otherwise disenfranchised because of their gender identity. And so I just was wondering if you had any thoughts on how doping might affect sports for transgender athletes and for gender and athletics more broadly. I'm not sure about transgender athletes, um, but I, I do know that there's a big problem with what are called intersex conditions. And there will be lots of women who have won Olympic events and placed very highly who are genetically male. And in fact, there was a recent sort of, you know, there, there's recurrently discussion of these sorts of cases, let me put it that way. What happens in these cases is that one of the most common is what's called androgen insensitivity syndrome. So you have a biological male um, with testes inside the abdomen producing testosterone but the tissues aren't recognising the testosterone. So the baby develops externally as a female, but has no ovaries or uterus, but has all the sort of external features. And in the complete syndrome, they look exactly like a female. Now, if you have this syndrome and you've got complete androgen insensitivity syndrome, you're essentially like every other woman. However, uh, the problem is that it can be partial so that the receptors partially recognise the testosterone. And so it's essentially they, um, they react in, to give some what's called androgenization, some virilization. So the woman will have larger muscles, be able to develop larger muscle bulk, have some sort of male features. And that's what's called an intersex condition. 
And the problem is that water and so on don't know what to do with, <laughs> with this group of people because it's natural. There are huge levels of testosterone or their high levels of testosterone are completely natural and they don't know how to test exactly how functional the receptors are and how much benefit they're getting from them. So they have no way of categorizing these women. So that's a big challenge for them. If you took my view, then the important thing would be people should be allowed to take that level of testosterone that's safe and that, you know, in the case of female athletes, that preserves some degree of femaleness would be a sort of an ideal of female athletic competition. And so if you had those as your values, you could then try to work out whether this group of athletes crossed those lines or not. Um, you'd still be faced with this challenge of trying to work out how functional the receptors were for testosterone. But at least it would give you a principled way of thinking about this sort of, because it doesn't matter whether on this view, whether you're genetically male or female, it doesn't matter on this view what your level of testosterone is per se. It matters whether, you know, it's safe for you to compete with that physiology, you know, whether you're sufficiently, you know, female to be able to compete. So I think this is another good example where we need to, once we've understood the science, which you know, people 100 years ago <laughs> didn't, had no idea of that there was this, this group of people who are midway between, or that have features of both sexes, then you can try to think how you should think about competition once you understand the science. So at the moment, it's just chaos with intersex conditions because this idea of natural genetic ability well, it's completely natural. They haven't, they're not taking testosterone. Their body's just producing it. I find it quite interesting. Um, I've written on this one as well. Another one was a, a case where a Finnish skier, a male skier, had a mutation, a genetic change, that meant that he produced 30% more red blood cells naturally. So he had massively high levels of red cells. and won, I think, three cross-country skiing gold medals. Now, you know... <laughs> You couldn't do that using science, but you know, if he was fit to compete with those levels of red cells, why aren't other people allowed to compete as well? And you know, why should we think that it's especially worth sport being a test of whether you happen to have a genetic mutation or not? You know, it, there doesn't seem to be anything ethically significant about <laughs> genetic mutations. Sport should be about something, about your will, you know, your ability to use the body that you have, your strategy, you know, your desire to take risks and so on, and not, you know, whether you just happen to have a genetic mutation or not. Julian Savalescu, thanks very much for a delightful interview. Thank you. My pleasure. If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at, at @elucidationspod, And as always... You can post a comment to our blog at Lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening.